Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about molecular plant biology. My name is Joram. And I'm Tegan. And today is sort of a special episode, something we've only done once before and very happy to do it again. We're having a guest with me here in a socially safe distance. No, socially safe sounds wrong. Um, we're very social tonight, but um, very safe from a health point of view is Florencia Janelli. Hello. Hi. It's awesome that Welcome. we have you. And um, yeah, today we want to talk a little bit about you and your work and your approach to science. And um, yeah, Tegan actually brought my attention to your work. And maybe Tegan, you want to say a few words how that happened? Yeah, just briefly. I mean, I saw a column that Florencia and her partner, is it okay for me to say that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Christian. <laughs> yeah, so, um, wrote for the career column for nature and this sort of came out um in early july and it was about sort of the lockdown but it although it acknowledges the difficulties of lockdown the piece just had a lot of really uplifting messages and sort of bits in it that i i really found were dear to my heart and i i it was just inspiring honestly so in it, um, they discuss finding new inspiration for science outside what's normal. They reveal the ability to do science in unexpected places and using basic materials, which some of you maybe know is something that Yoram and I are, are really passionate about. Um, and finally, there's also this discussion, a brief discussion of the role of citizen science and also science communication, um, which hopefully will also come up as part of our discussion today. And so... I basically read this piece and I was immediately messaged you and I was like, we have to talk to these people. This is just a cool, interesting and yeah, it's a happy topic, which is, is so nice and so necessary at the moment. So we're really grateful and excited that you said yes and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, it was really a surprise. We get we got uh, your email and also the email of... Um, Oh, this is super cute. So there is a dad who is doing videos with his son about different aspects of uh, oh. like science or nature. And they are in Switzerland. Oh, So I, I still have to make a video for them as well. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was actually really excited to, to have these connections with new people that usually like there's so much out there that you don't really mm -hmm. know about all this things yeah especially in the current times it's making new connections yeah just, exactly it's a really nice silver lining um yeah and we'll try and we can get the link for the the father and son team and put yes. the link in the show notes so everybody can find out about their amazing project as well yeah it's i'm very intrigued now already um i mean my son is much too young to to do something like this but i can imagine doing like i don't know if it will be public but doing some like science exploration thing uh, with him in the future as well Yeah, they have, at least they have great ideas. And even uh, there is an episode, I mean, obviously it's in it's in German, so I don't understand 100% and it's sweet Swiss German, so that's even more <laughs> so challenging even, for me. Even I would struggle then. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's super cute. And there are even like, there's an episode where they are drawing things, which I, oh, I wish I had time for learning how to draw like plants and, and insects and so on. It's like seems amazing but i never have time to do that so yeah i highly recommend their episodes <laughs> cool i love this thing also where everybody has like different creative talents which they're putting together with their science and just definitely you know expressing themselves in different ways super amazing um yeah so i i'm very interested how you became a plant researcher um i mean 
sort of spoiler already now you are a plant researcher and that's why you are on a plant research uh, podcast um and but before we actually look at your research and what you what you're trying to figure out i would like to know what make made you fall in love with plants <laughs> that's an actually very in funny question so I didn't really care about plants. <laughs> oh, no. Get out of here. Oh, like, oh, yes. We've made a terrible mistake. No, that's exactly how I started becoming interested in plants. Yeah, so basically, I didn't care about plants before university. And then I, when I had my botany classes, and then, so specifically systematics, where you had to identify, identify the plants, and uh, it was just... Uh, then I was obsessed because I, I needed to identify everything that was around me. And even at some point of driving around and like very dangerously trying to identify like the trees or whatever it was. So yeah, yeah I got to that point. Uh, It's the original Pokemon game where you're like trying to catch them all, but like yeah, <laughs> with yeah. trees. But the dangerous version. <laughs> the very dangerous version. Yeah. Yeah, so then I, I well, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a typical case where they say more knowledge brings you, interest to you. So I think mm -hmm. it was like that. I, I really liked that and uh, like the things you could, you could study with plants. And yeah, I mean, animals are also nice, but they're also more difficult to, to study <laughs> And you need way more uh, permissions. Yeah, yeah. When when you go after them with a car, they tend to run away. Yeah. The tree stays there. <laughs> exactly. Did, did you ever go through this experience that I think many plant scientists have of having to do a dissection of something like a mouse dissection and just thinking this is not for me? This is not. I think Yoram, you have a story like this in your background where you decided that cutting I, things is not. I luckily never had to cut anything alive open apart from plants. Um, so, but I, I, I studied biotechnology and I, at one point I was sort of at crossroads between industrial biotechnology, which is just working with fermenters and yeast and bacteria. So very, to me, kind of boring stuff. And then the other part was medical biotechnology where you would then, you could select your, your organism. And it was either like mice that you would have to like induce tumor, tumors or do like experiments on them or chicken Uh, for like virus research where you then uh, infiltrate the eggs and then you have to dissect the eggs of the like developing chicken and um, neither of these things excited me in any way I really didn't want to work with animal cells or animals um, and so I took the way out and went into plant research I realized that you can also do biotechnology in plants and through that I got my way into plant research um, so it was also like I, I wasn't interested in, in them at all in the beginning, yeah. but also in my 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 studies, I never had to do botany. Like I, as a biotech in biotechnology, it's very engineering heavy, so um, I actually never had all of the classic biology classes that people have to do. Like I think I struggle to this day to properly name all the parts of a plant, um, like with their scientific names. And every time we write a post about it, I have to have like a Wikipedia page open that says like, this is the abaxial side and this is the adaxial side. <laughs> That's the, the back and the front or the bottom and top of the leaf for anybody playing at home. Yeah. And I can't tell you now which one is which, because also in science, we always like use very similar sounding names for sort of the opposite of things. Um, so... Should we... I I want to say the abaxial is the a back side of the leaf, the bottom side. But that's <laughs> you are trying to like, find the memo te techniques, or did you <laughs> yeah, use yeah, that already? 
the thing is, like, with these techniques, half the time I'm not sure if I remember it correctly or if it's, like, it's the opposite to the backside, so it's actually the front side. Like, I, you know, I have a technique, but I'm not sure if the technique is living me in the right direction anymore, so who knows? Yeah, we have... We are, now you remind me that we used to, like, make up uh, words or songs to, to learn the plant names or the plant families, uh... Yeah. Oh, do you remember any of these songs? No, not at all. Damn. <laughs> that would have been really... I should have taped them. Yeah. But just a whole new section of the podcast, like singing um, plant songs would be quite well, charming. <laughs> now, I mean, since we are talking about singing, just today um, we I was watching a, a video. So um, in, the, in my previous position in South Africa, uh, there used to be an um, annual meeting with all the people in the in the institute because they were all around South Africa. And with a friend, we decided to come up with a song about invasive species using um, Queen's song, a Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh, wow. And I must say, like, it, it was embarrassing to sing it in front of every, uh, everyone there, but it was actually pretty awesome. Unfortunately, we only have like a piece of the song, but like I was saying to my friend, she's not working with invasion ecology anymore. Uh, but I was like, if we if we meet in a conference, we should definitely schedule this because it's like, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. And the people were singing because we put the lyrics in the in like in a PDF, like in the background. And so people were singing. It was really <laughs> Oh, nice. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is a good choice. Like, everybody yeah. knows that. Exactly. So once you've got the word, yeah. That's... And it's so epic. It's really cool. It yeah, must, exactly. must be a theme with plant scientists and, and like 80s um, rock songs and making new lyrics for them because we did that. Because well. <laughs> you did that <laughs> as well. Yeah. yeah, but not with Bohemian Rhapsody. Total Eclipse of the Heart. And oh. our song was about Rubisco and how it's a bit of a useless enzyme because it does photorespiration and it doesn't always like recognize carbon dioxide. And it's it's the entire song of, of Total Eclipse of the Heart, which is what, what three or four minute song. It's but pretty long. about Rubisco, yeah. That was yeah. um and I still consider that to be one of the greatest triumphs of my PhD era was like the most yeah. one yes. of the highest significant things was making up this song. Yeah. Wait, there's a video also like out there that I saw, I think a couple of years ago with, I think with the rhythm of Despacito, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know exactly the topic. Uh, there are some really great ones out there that I've seen like um, Bad Romance by Lady Gaga with Bad Project instead. So kind of singing yeah. about oh, yeah, so crappy, yeah. <laughs> See, we're a creative bunch as scientists. Like, yeah, if, if people let us be creative, we are creative. Um, and sometimes yeah. we have to find our own way to be creative. Um, yeah, speaking about, like, try, I try to, like, I have a list of questions and I try to sort of bend our little derailing <laughs> here um, back on back to the topic. Um, so derailing I'm, is brilliant. Yeah, no, um, I'm very happy when every time we do it. Um, But I would just like, um, I would like to know how your interest in plants, is that still going on now in your current work? What what are you working on? And are you still like driving around tr dangerously trying to identify trees or doing something else now? Right now, since the lockdown is <laughs> sort of over, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I can get to... I can get back to writing manuscripts or working on the other projects. Um, 
So I'm not, I actually, I'm not really doing so much in the field, field meaning Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that those plants kind of, yeah, are not really realistic anymore because then I have to, I don't know the species, so then I have to go with someone else. So yeah, so I'm doing my more uh, computer kind of work. Um, but I do, we do, so we, we keep um, our project of alien escapists not 100% alive. We try to, to input more uh, on it. So we are just f gathering uh, footage or um, pictures to, to, we want to make some short videos for science communication about uh, alien invasive species in the city. So which plants that you see in gardens that are, you you say like oh that that is really beautiful and then you see them everywhere <laughs> so that's like it, yeah it is beautiful but <laughs> there's uh. nothing else to it um mm -hmm. so yeah <laughs> just last weekend i just went there was a house close to the our previous flat that is infested with this invasive species that is amazing but um Yeah, it's all over the place. So I was just like making a video really fast before the lady will, will recognize that someone was filming because you're, you don't know if you get into trouble. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's just so, like a yellow uh, garden with this uh, plant. But this is, a, this is an invasive plant. So, so just basically the, the idea of alien escapists is to look for these inv invasive um, plant species. And ideally, you want to kind of also have some you know, public interaction as well through this alien uh, alien escapist project? Well, uh, the, the original idea was that we thought, uh, okay, let's do an experiment. And I was lucky enough that I gathered some seeds when my baby was born and I was going around and I and I do a couple, uh, I do know a couple of the invasive species here because I did my PhD in Munich So they're not exactly the same, but they, but you can find still some here. And I was like, okay, maybe we'll need the seeds for an experiment in the future. So I collected a lot <laughs> from different populations. And then we, we thought about, okay, uh, we could access um, invaded places with this species uh, in gardens because it's everywhere or even in some areas like um, roadsides and places like that or where the Berlin Wall was, there's also there. And so we, we first started thinking, okay, let's make a, a, a small experiment that could maybe serve as a trial or even Maybe, maybe uh, be publishable, but I don't think so. And then we thought, well, but this is very easy, so maybe people can do it in, in their houses. But then after a meeting with my group, <laughs> they discouraged me a little bit because, I mean, you do, it's true, you do have to have some, uh, you have to care about the, what you do with the plants afterwards, because if you just throw them away, then you might be dispersing the species. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not as easy. Mm -hmm. So then we thought, okay, uh, maybe we do the experiment and we try to explain like how you create an experiment, why you will have a control, how you do you design the, the different treatments. So that's what we are trying to work um, with. But then at the same time, we thought the social media could be interesting to also encourage other people doing uh, urban uh, invasions or working on urban invasions to also share their 
research ideas and so on. But that is a little bit still shy. Like people don't really want to share so much of their research, mm -hmm. which I find, yeah, I don't know. Like it, I understand, but it's... Yeah, yeah, it's something that we also sometimes talk about here. But um, before uh, we touch already on so many exciting things that we definitely will talk more about, but I think for our listeners, it might be interesting to to define what what is an invasive species, <laughs> and are they always bad? In in my sort of naive mind, I would think that all species were invasive at one point. I mean, it's the point of spreading their seeds and going to new habitats. So what is the difference between, I don't know, my population of Arabidopsis that's slowly making its way across the country and an invasive species? Okay, so that is a whole topic <laughs> in the field. So, well, there's a lot going on on definitions. So invasion ecology is still sort of a young field, but at the same time, it's pretty established. Uh, I would say. Uh, but there's still a lot of, no, I wouldn't say fights, but discussions about terminology. So in general, what is more accepted is a species that has been moved by human agency and but does not need humans to spread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that creates an impact. So it doesn't, until there, no, it's not necessarily a negative impact. Although one of the criticisms of the field is that we always concentrate on the negative aspects. Yeah. Fair can, enough. Can you, can you name an invasive species that's like a positive invasive species in a certain area? I mean, can you think of anything off your head, off the top of your head? Well, I can, like from South Africa, I can tell you that you have, so for example, acacia, so wattles, wattles uh, Australian wattles. Australian, yes, Australian you, species? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm very happy. <laughs> so... I mean, they they are in principle like one can say they're beautiful. They actually the wood of one particular acacia species is very precious for uh, what they call braai, which is barbecue. So they like the best braai is with that wood, but that's actually a very bad species in terms of biodiversity because um, basically you where, where you have acacias. Acacia stands, most of the times there's nothing or almost nothing else growing there. So mm -hmm. so you, you, you get this kind of negative impacts in terms of diversity, but positive in terms of people using the wood. And for some communities, it's very important. It's almost, especially in these areas that are mostly shrublands, having a tree is, is uh, quite uh, good. Can I ask, is it, is it just out-competing? Is it just growing faster than everything else? Or is that also like exuding something disgusting into the soil to stop other things from growing? You, like you, make, you make very <laughs> difficult questions. <laughs> oh, I don't. I, I'm just curious because, you know, it's an Australian plant and I hope it's playing nicely with the other plants, but it sounds like it's not. <laughs> you know, when it's from Australia, it's probably killing the other things. It's probably like poisonous and venomous at the same time. I always had this argument that like Australian plants are at least nice. You know, our animals are terrifying, but our plants are lovely. Whereas like, we don't have like stinging nettle or um, poison ivy in Australia. You literally have exploding trees. Yeah. And now I'm hearing <laughs> that we have exploding trees and like mean acacia that like bullies all the other plants away. So I'm just not sure anymore. Well, but to be fair, South Africans also send you some invasive proteas, so... Yes, but they are also beautiful yes, and I, I kind of take them into my heart because they're just so lovely. 
Yeah, I mean, the the aesthetic value is also kind of a, a positive uh, impact. So for some people, in in some even in some areas, they have been around for such a long time that they consider them almost as or, or even more important than, than natives. I mean, f- for the protea, even like from as an Australian, I just thought th- those were Australian growing up as well. It's, I mean, we have this kind of link with the the South African similar kind of like f- uh, flowers and and yeah, flora. Yeah. Yes. Can I ask something else about the invasive species, which might also be a bit of a, a difficult question? I'm sure it's debated. One of the issues, one of the things I'm very interested in is climate change and obviously organisms shifting with climate change because, you know, the the rainfall and the temperature regimes are changing. So these species have to migrate. If a species is mat- is naturally, I mean, kind of enforced by human human climate change moving to the north would you think that's now invading new areas or would you say it's kind of not an invasive species yeah what, what's happening there does that class as invasive for you or not i, I first of all i want to say that uh, i like uh, invasion ecology but mostly because i like community ecology and to me invasions are a, per- a perfect experiment for studying other aspects of community ecology Mm-hmm. That being said, <laughs> yes, there's a lot of discussion about what you're call- what, what you're saying. So is this range expanding species? Yeah, I mean, it depends a lot. I would say it depends a lot on the impacts. But actually, mm-hmm. in uh, last week there was this uh, Neobiota conference, um, and one of the presentations um, they were arguing for naming. Some of the species, at least, uh, what I think they call neo neo natives. No, yeah, neo natives. I think. Um, okay. So, uh, and they were arguing uh, for, um, well, yeah, considering this new um, type of species because in Europe you have this this division that you don't find in in America at least. Uh, this archaeophytes and neophytes. So archaeophytes were the species that were technically not from Europe, but they were somehow here. They reached here, either, I don't know, natural ways or probably humans. But it was before the discovery of America. But because when discovery, quote, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not quote, (laughs) but like... (laughs) We need like a sound way of saying these like air inverted quotes, yeah. Air, yeah, quotes, air quotes yeah. because we use it so much and we just don't have a good way of portraying it on air. Yeah, as I, I'm going to say like I'm South America, so I, I will argue against mm-hmm. that. But let's say like, yeah, when, when Europeans reached America and there was a high uh, influx of species uh, both ways. And so all the species that arrived to Europe after that point are called neo um Neoph- uh, neophytes, yeah. neophytes, yeah, and so and neophytes also don't mean that they are invasive. They're just they were brought uh, at that point, and some of them, when they can spread and then can have negative impacts, then they they are called invasive species. That I find that sometimes a bit confusing as well because I'm not European. Mm. But uh, yeah, so they are arguing like for this new uh, extra term for the species that are moving now around and not necessarily with uh, because of humans directly moving them, but because of like, yeah climate change Direct. and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sounds like there's also this problem, which we always have. I mean, we discuss this so often on the podcast that 
we want to put things into kind of neat, often dichotomous categories of, yes. you said neophyte and archetype, but it just doesn't work like that. I mean, things are always changing in the natural world and they, they don't want to be defined in such simple ways. And then we, we struggle with terminology and it becomes a semantic argument, which which nobody needs. But yeah, <laughs> I sometimes feel that that also confuses people because... Um, and, and, and creates a little bit of mistrust in science because I think we can all say, because I also thought that, okay, like scientists already know everything and they they have a perfect definition for everything and so on. Maybe it's because that's how you are taught in university. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then <laughs> you realize when you're doing already your PhD, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> Like someone tells you, yeah. no, I don't agree with your definition. And then, yeah. And so I think that sometimes uh, like people find it confusing. I mean, this is just the major problem of science, how to be confident and assertive without having absolutes, which we can never have in science, right? How to say, look, like, look, we know that wearing a mask if you have COVID is a great idea. And even if you don't have COVID, but we can't say 100%. Yeah, does exactly. it. You know, there's these kind of numbers and and... Yeah, I think that's something that in our education we need to teach. We need to learn the way to think in that uncertain terms, which is it's difficult for us as humans. I think we like black and white and it just yeah. makes our world a bit easier. You said a word, um, you said that you are not interested in, in invasive ecology as much as you're interested in community ecology. What is that? I, I work in between actually uh, invasion ecology and restoration ecology. So like the restoration after invasions have been cleared or how to create communities that can be somehow sort of resistant to the invasive species. But because I think we can learn a lot about why a community of plants is as it is. Um, because then you introduce like an external element and then you see, okay, you center your attention into that element. So the invasive species in this case, and then you say, Uh, oh, okay. Why is uh, what are what mechanisms are making this uh, species su successful or not? Or yeah, displace another one so you can see competition, facilitation, and many other interactions, even with other organisms, not just plants. Um, mm -hmm. And so I I find it like like you can focalize a little bit more your attention. It's not like okay community assembly like mm -hmm. why communities are like that but you can focus on on something but that's why i find it interesting although like of course i also like i it's like a big puzzle to see why is this uh, species so successful and all of a sudden it's introduced to a system and it's like wow uh, all over the place so It also has these questions that are mm -hmm. really puzzling, and I, I like that. Um, but I don't, for example, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm <laughs> not so interested in the management of the of the species. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah, which which is very important. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. It, it should be done. Doesn't mean that we have to be the ones yeah, doing it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I I'm I find it very relatable because also like I have some research topics that I care more about but that doesn't mean that i dislike all of the others like there's definitely always interesting things in in other fields and there's also some aspects for me it was always like crop breeding um sort of the a, a very much applied biotechnology part of it where i was just like 
I I think it's very cool that people are doing that, but I don't yeah, really... Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't really care about the details of, like, backcrossing and QTLs and whatnot. Um, I'd rather look at the, like, molecular workings that say, like, this protein is doing this and that. Um, but yeah. But now let's let's circle back a little bit to what we... To the project that we touched already, the alien escapists or alienscapists i was i wasn't sure how it's because i think your twitter handle is alienscapists or something but ah uh, yeah yeah so what is that exactly what is that project about and what did you do there so as i said like i thought it would be a good idea for both networking with other people working in urban environments with invasive species uh because i'm new Uh, in that field and actually cities are more different than i thought <laughs> from <laughs> sort of natural uh, um, ecosystems um, and also we wanted to share like our ideas and maybe get other people interested in maybe replicating our, our experiment in some other place or like having a other idea of experiment or observation to do or something like that. And we actually, we have some, I have a, a couple of friends in South America that want to do their experiment. Maybe you can quickly say, what is the experiment? Okay. <laughs> so the experiment was initially, it was supposed to be a competition experiment where we will put the, one individual of the invasive species and one individual of the native of a, whatever native species that you find in gardens, like a common species. And then we will test how the competition was in soils that we collected in invaded patches and soils uh, that we connect, collected in uninvaded patches and different urban areas. Uh, in the end, We only we most of the native species died uh, in the competition, so we end up having a very small competition sort of trial. But then we did have like a so a growth experiment. So we had native species growing in these different soils, mm -hmm. and so that we had enough replicates. <laughs> <laughs> Because in the end, uh, although I really took a lot of care uh, with the plants, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I don't have enough replicates in this. So then we we, tra we transformed it. But it was very interesting to see some uh, responses. Like, so far I only have data on the height. And I also, I counted the leaves I say I because I did that <laughs> while my <laughs> husband was taking care of the baby before holidays and preparing and everything. Workload sharing. Yeah. So he he did he did uh, he did count um, not count the leap but um, access the data in the computer. But then the measuring and everything I did that and the biomass. So we did biomass in our oven <laughs> in our kitchen oven. Are the dried biomass? Yes. Oh. <laughs> No, and actually it worked quite well, I must say. Like Cool. That's really nice. So this I just interject here, this is a thing where I mean you can take a plant and basically cut it and weigh it, but a lot of the time I mean plants like us, a lot of what what their weight is is just water. So yeah, you exactly. don't want to just see how much weight are their water they're holding, excuse me. You want to dry them out and see how much actual tissue and like real 
body stuff they have. So that's why we, we do wet, wet weight and dry weight usually. Yeah, exactly. So it's like indirect measure of fitness. So performance yeah. of the plant. And usually it is, well, at least in, in my experiments, it has been correlated with height of the plant. But I find sometimes height doesn't tell you so much because, well, plants can maybe, if they were shaded or mm -hmm. whatever, maybe they grew a little bit taller, but that doesn't mean that they were actually doing so well, but they were just yeah. trying to reach for light. My my prior research was actually on a tilating, so so growing plants in the darkness, and those things will get really tall because they're just growing yes. as fast as they can to try and find a light source. But isn't they it are not happy plants. And amazing at the same time? <laughs> it's it's both. It's really fascinating how much energy they can put into getting like desperately. It, it just feels like so desperate. Like they just want nothing more than to reach the sunlight. I'm sorry, I'm personifying the plants here, but. <laughs> Yeah. Like, grow some grow some seedlings in the dark and you'll see what I mean. Like they are sad and, and they need that light. <laughs> we had those experiments in our uh, plant physiology class and it was really crazy. <laughs> like the internodes were super long and mm -hmm. they're white, like almost completely white. And then you turn the lights on and within, you know, a day they've just turned to green and they're... Like, I mean, they're not super happy. They're still super long and tall and gangly, but yeah. they're trying really hard to be a normal plant the second you turn the lights on. Yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah, Guys, plants are wonderful. <laughs> which, which invasive species did you use? Uh, that is Solidago canadensis. So it's called goldenrod or Canadian goldenrod. So it's um, from Canada. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the name. <laughs> the common name. And... Um, And it's very common uh, in, it's used as an ornamental plant, but not only like can be spread by trains or cars. It has really tiny seeds. Um, and then also um, they can, they can also reproduce um, asexually by the um, root, by, by root structure. So they don't really need only the seeds, mm -hmm. but the seeds grow very well as okay. well i have to say um our old workplace had kind of a cleared lot which they were waiting to do some building in and i'm just i'm just looking at the images of this guy and it was everywhere like yeah. that lot was mowed down and within a couple of months it was 90 this this golden rod just yeah yeah, yeah. completely exactly. everywhere yeah it also i'm looking at the pictures now and it's um it feels very familiar yeah you you will see it for sure because especially now it's it's this yellow flowers and I, I'm not sure if in, in the cases of the gardens, that would be also interesting to know if they, if it's people planting them or is it people just that like find them there and they're like, oh, that's a beautiful plant and they just leave it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've definitely like bought bouquets at the farmer's market in Germany, which have got this weed inside it. So <laughs> somebody is finding aesthetic yeah. value in this guy, which it's, it's yeah. nice for it. Like it's appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Well, seed contamination is also a thing, uh, like a pathway of invasion. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> they didn't have a choice to include it. Like it chose to be included and it's, it's happening now. Yeah, exactly. And so you grew them on these different soils. Um, how, how do I imagine that? Like how many plants and like how many pots did you have? Did you suddenly have? I know that back in my old workplace in the greenhouse, we had like these massive tubs of soil that we used to grow our plants. And do you have that at home now as well? No, we had so... I think we collected maybe like um, 15 kilos of soil, wow. maybe. 
but it was all done in 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 like um plastic cups mm -hmm. uh but we we collected some soil uh from the beginning for analysis of, uh, of the soil traits but potentially also for uh microbial communities <laughs> so I actually used the bags uh, that are for um, storing milk, breastfeeding milk, mm -hmm. because those are um, <laughs> sterilized. So, so. Oh, wow. That is so clever. I haven't thought of that. But yeah, I, I remember like when, when we had to use them as well, like you either sterilize them yourself or you buy them already sterile. It's yeah, exactly. so clever. And I had so many uh, because they come in like in big bags. So I used those. It was going to be... You Sorry. Sorry, can you explain why it's important that we have sterile bags here? What's what's the reasoning behind this? Ah, yeah, good question. So, um, so that you don't transfer micro microbes, soil microbes from maybe one one area, one type of soil to the other, because plants are closely related to soil, the soil microbes that grow with them. Um, either because they are influencing the communities or because they are influenced by the communities. Um, and in, in the case of invasive species, sometimes they, they establish this sort of positive relationships that um, actually help them grow better. So um, we thought that depending on how the results uh, of what we see above ground um, were, then we maybe do the, the soil analysis or not. Because they are expensive and yeah, it takes quite some time. But so far, um, I haven't analyzed the biomass because we have to wait it, and that is something that I cannot do at home. <laughs> I need a, a better scale. Um, but with the with the height, at least I see differences uh, in terms of the in some in some of the sites um, of how natives are growing. In some, they are growing very well in the in the non-invaded compared to the invaded. But it's highly species dependent and site dependent, and that's mm -hmm. always what is difficult about invasion yeah. ecology as well. That we yeah. try to find the mechanism by which the invasive species is successful, and then in the end, you always reach the conclusion: oh, it's case dependent. <laughs> I imagine it's really hard picking apart the different influences. Like it's difficult if yeah. you think about just a garden and something next to a road. You have so many different chemicals that are getting in contact with the soil that could have an inf influence there. So I imagine that must be really hard. Yeah, exactly. So the the next step will be to analyze the the soil um, for to see well like the, the nutrients levels and so on to see if there are some differences there that could explain it. But it's always in the end, because the experiment was not designed for specifically testing, for example, nitrogen effects or so on, you always can say like, well, maybe it is this, but you cannot really pinpoint it to that unless you really do an experiment to test that. Mm. And that's always, well, the trade-off, like, what do you include in the experiment? What do you leave outside? And then, of course, you will have maybe a reviewer who would say, like, oh, but you did not include this. <laughs> reviewer <like>, three. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, I know. Because <laughs> I, I only had this certain space or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also the thing about science. When you read a scientific paper, you read what seems like a straight line, like a story that has a start and an end, but that's not what science no. is. Science is, is like, 
thousands of branches and the branches loop back on themselves and you end up stuck in a spiral for two years and then you come out the other side and it's it's really like just a mix of I mean we're doing the whole point of science is to understand things that people don't understand yet so the results are going to be unexpected and then you can get yes and yeah interesting and amazing and you also almost always I think you have new questions (laughs) so yes (laughs) You start with one question, and if you don't have like twenty times more questions by the end, yeah. you haven't done science. You failed. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to just quickly touch on this um, microbiology idea because I think this is like a really important and up up and coming thing in, like, not just with plants but also with animals and like humans as well. So, just for those of you who are unaware, when you think of a plant or an animal, you often sort of see one individual. You look at a penguin and you see a penguin. But that's actually not the reality of that penguin's existence. The penguin exists with like billions of bacteria and, you know, in the context of not like inside its body, but also in the environment around it. And these are absolutely essential for that penguin to exist in a healthy way. So one thing that's getting a lot of um, discussion now is humans and like the gut microbiome so the different microorganisms that live inside our gut that help us digest things and you know maybe have impacts on our immunity and our health and stuff like that so this is another part of the story where when it comes to these invasive species you can't just say species a that's invasive is better than species b that's native because it can completely depend on these these microbiomes so this is why this this research is just so so important and so fascinating yeah exactly yeah there are um the case of um certain pine species that were introduced um for forestry so for for the wood and they did not really they were not able to spread uh until the some of them were actually co-introduced with mycorrhiza so after they got the mycorrhiza, then they were able to mm. spread. And so then they were able to become invasive. So many of them are, many of the invasive species might be in this lag period for a very long time. So that means that they are what we what we call established or naturalized, uh, but they, they're just growing there and they don't really spread much more. Mm-hmm. But then something happens and and then they become they're just yeah, invasive yeah they're just waiting for this friendly funky to come along yeah, and like exactly. and this lock in with their roots and then everything's going to kick off and exactly that. this is really hard to predict and this is one of the reasons why your work is so important because there's so many different factors at play you're not just looking at one thing that we can see there's like billions of things that we can't see that are also constantly shifting and interacting with also these abiotic factors like the soil nitrogen as you mentioned and you know precipitation temperature so yeah I, it's it's a really really cool topic I have to say really amazing yeah I actually like it a lot and um yeah and yeah the the thing is that it's not only the plants as you mentioned it's also the microorganisms but also the insects the pollinators because obviously mm. some need pollinators and mm-hmm. not all of them are pollin um or can relate with generalist pollinators um so sometimes with the bacteria it's a bit more difficult because um you don't see it, so it's a bit more difficult to identify. But with acacia species, for example, because they are legumes, mm-hmm. they they um, need to relate with rhizobia to fix nitrogen. And so one of the big questions was whether they could take advantage of 
bacteria that was in the the new range or whether they came with the bacteria so they if they were co-introduced oh, wow, with yeah. them and from some of the um, research from the lab i was in south africa it seems that they were co-introduced mm-hmm. okay yeah but they also seem to benefit from from some bacteria uh, that they can find locally in the new range and they tend to sort of um select for certain ones and either either they select or they select indirectly because the conditions in the soil are not good for the other bacteria for to survive uh, so that also is difficult to to mm-hmm. identify but yeah it's fascinating and there are so many questions about that and so many like interactions but also feedbacks on those interactions exactly, yeah. so like is the plant talking to the bacteria or the bacteria talking back to the plant and it's all just yeah, it's it's a giant chaotic puzzle, which, you know, we get small pieces of every day and it's, it's, it's great. You mentioned in the beginning that you wanted people to take part in this experiment of testing the different soils. How was that supposed to happen and what is the plan now? <laughs> we decided that uh, it would be safer if just other scientists would do it uh, in in their gardens or their balconies. But um, in the end, some of our friends who tried to do it, uh, some either their, their plants died or they didn't, their seeds didn't germinate or things like that. So only my friends from the southern hemisphere are, are maybe considering on doing it. But it's also very difficult if you don't have enough replicates. So if you don't have enough people doing the experiment in different parts, you don't really know whether, whether the results are general, like, you can make general conclusions out of them or not because mm-hmm. you can say, well, yeah, this is what happens with this species in Argentina. But that doesn't necessarily give you, uh, gives you an idea of the general pattern of yeah, invasion success in cities because mm-hmm. it's a very particular result. Well, that, that's always a trade-off on how, how many claims you can make out of your data <laughs> and your papers as well. Yeah. Would it help if you would have just so many more people taking part in this? Like if you would have instead of dozens, maybe hundreds of people doing the experiment and would that then sort of average itself out? Yes, definitely. So the more people you have, the the less um, specific to a place the result or a species the result will be. We, we thought, okay, maybe if uh, many people do it with different native species, different invasive species, but it like similar, maybe like also Asteracea species, like Solidagues and Asteracea. Um, uh, we, we could find something interesting, but yeah, I mean, in the end it has to be, it, it really needs some commitment. And yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we are all doing many, many more things that we thought we would do it, do it at this point. So what we decided now is that we we want to make public what we are finding. And so far, I also like I took pictures of how the experiment was um, um, performing and then to ask people what they thought about. And now when I have the time to... <laughs> To analyze the data, I also want to just put it out there in Twitter and see what other people think about it and so on. Mm-hmm. And then maybe people will have ideas for new experiments or new um, 
observations, yeah, things like that. So um, it's for now it's kind of in the side, uh, and I still want to really try to do a bit more science communication. It's all, always a bit difficult with the language and mm -hmm. here. Yeah. I mean, we realize that as well here with, with our little project that um, being an English language um, sort of program and, and blog, like most of our readers don't come from Germany where yeah. we are, like where I am and Tegan used to be. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really difficult when you have, in your case, such a sort of, you're grounded to the local environment. It would be interesting for the people locally here, but then you have the language barrier and so on. Um, but as you said, that you you are already invested in sort of scientific outreach and communication. Um, I know that you're also doing other things, right? You just last weekend, there was an event that you helped co-organize, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> What was that? So we, uh, we were organizing the soapbox science event which actually took a uh, place in like live with people yeah. socially distancing and with masks but it was very nice um so this is a project so we are the berlin team which used to be the only team in germany but now there are many more which is amazing And the the idea of the soapbox science is to try to bring science to the streets, but at the same time have uh, more exposure for women in science so that people also relate scientists as women and not just all people, all guys with lab coats. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Although they, to be uh, to be fair, the speakers in the soapbox do have lab coats. It's kind yeah. of like the, the 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 thing to to draw attention from other people. Yeah, we used to do that as well. Where I was involved in the um, DIY science community, or rather in the Science Tech Day Berlin, and we also for for the event, all of the organizers would always wear a lab coat because yeah. we had to signal that it's about science now, even though it made no sense in the context to wear a lab coat. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, it's a proxy. Actually, I think. People would think now that it had to do with doctors and something about Corona, <laughs> which I oh, think, yeah. I don't know how, how much <laughs> it might have influenced, but I think some people got that feeling and yeah. That could have been helpful though, draw the audience in and then while you've got them, like fascinate them with a plant science <laughs> or with, I mean, it's general science. It's general, science. yeah. So yeah. we had yeah. physicists, we had um, neurologists, we had also ecologists. Actually, this year, ecologists were not so, um, not, they were still well represented, but I think previous years, it was even even more. But even for me, it's it's amazing going to this event because the speakers really put a lot of effort into trying to explain their, their research in an exciting way. And it's just amazing. And One of the one of the speakers actually enrolled her kids and the, and some friends of them to explain the topic. So she works with um, algae. Oh wow! Mm. Yeah. So they had like a super production <laughs> with the kids, um, and uh, they were really invested in the message. So she she. She had to make it in German because the kids would not necessarily understand the cues mm -hmm. when they had to 
to intervene if it was in English. So she she put a lot of effort to to have the message in German, although she doesn't um, necessarily speak it so often. And it was really really nice. And I think there, as we also discussed with her, uh, the it, it it for sure made a big impact on the kids as well because mm -hmm. they now were caring about okay what's happening with global change and algae or in our lakes or so I think. Uh, Yeah, it was um, really, really cool. I actually think, I mean, for for me, I was trying to do science communication in, in German for a while, and my German has never been amazing. And I, I've told this story before, possibly on the podcast, but for me, trying to translate into my own German skills, which was like child-level German, was actually a really helpful way to understand how to communicate science without the jargon. Because basically, mm -hmm. like, If I couldn't communicate it in my own childish German, I was probably trying to use two complicated ideas anyway. I was probably trying to use scientific jargon that I, I didn't know the translation for. And so this, this kind of involving of kids just seems like a sort of way of getting beyond your own limitations that we have from, from this academic way of speaking. Yes, yes. Indeed. As well as being very, very cute, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is, a, uh, for the um, speakers uh, workshop, uh, we have uh, an app or uh, like, I mean, it's, I think it's on a website. So you have, it's one like thing that you can only use 1000 words. So there's the most Use words? Oh, we know it. It's simple things. It's by the creator of XKCD, I think. Yeah, um, yeah I think so. Random wonder? Yeah. I actually didn't try to do it with my topic, but it's like the, the exercise that we didn't get to do during the workshop because of time constraint, but we, it was like homework for the speakers, was to try to explain your um, research topic only using your words that were there. And I think, it, I, I mean, I, I have to do that. I, I should do that right away because uh, it's really cool. Yeah, we used that on the blog at the very beginning. We when we didn't know exactly what type of content we wanted to do, we had to sort of for a couple of weeks, every week, one scientific thing explained using the simple writer with just the one thousand most common words. And it was it was really hard, especially when you get to cell yeah. biology and you suddenly talk about like um, tiny water bags because you want to can't say the word cell because it's not in the one thousand uh, um, the list of one thousand most commonly used words in the English language. But it was a great exercise. Um, I was writing these things and I had so much fun coming up with ways of making the sentence understandable and precise but without any jargon. Can I actually, can we do one on air? Yeah, can I, can I test you and see if you can work out? I mean, Yoram wrote this, so Yoram, you're not guessing. I'm going to read out what he read and you have to guess which the word is, um, which could be difficult. So it goes, this little living machine is found inside of almost all green living things. When you look close, it looks like a tiny bag of water that is filled with tiny living machines. These machines have helpers to gather sunlight and they look green. So the entire tiny bag of water looks green to us. In the past, the green bags of water was living on its own. One day it was eaten by a bigger bag of water, but not completely. <laughs> They began to live together. Today, the work of the tiny green bags of water gives power in the form of sweet stuff to all living things, also you and me. Wait, did you do that right now? No, no. No, this is one that Yoram wrote oh. months and months ago when we first started the blog. Over so. a year ago. Wait, can I say why I yeah. think it is? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Sorry, Yoram, you're going to have to check my sound levels there. But <laughs> wow. 
it's amazing. But as you can it's see, really yeah. Good. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. And I mean, I mean, it's it's such a short paragraph, but I easily spend like half an hour or more on it trying to oh yeah put the words Putting together words that they, and then it kind of clashes yeah yeah because then i remember just like the sweet stuff just get the idea that they make sugar from sunlight sugar. and sugar is not in the list of words and so you have to like find a way around that and um yeah i think we've got like 11 or 12 of them on the website it's under simple things if anybody else is interested in giving it a try it also has the link to the yeah the original simple things right away you can try your own yeah it's amazing that one is really amazing <laughs> thank you <laughs> now I'm, I'm sort of want to go back to this but no, I, I had completely forgotten about the existence of this and um i think i have some workshops coming up that i will be giving and i think i will use it again there as an exercise i think that could be good i think it's really good yeah because even the even some words that you think Oh, okay. This is this is simple. People can understand it, and yeah, people can understand it. But as we talk about definitions and so on, sometimes it's just easier to explain what is the concept and not so much like the def like yeah. what's the exact mm -hmm. definition or yeah, yeah, the exact terminology mm -hmm. and the the specific Latin word for it. Um, yeah, like these things, they have their place. Like in science, it's important to be precise with your language, but when you want to do outreach. It's much very uh, very often not at all important, um, like what the exact word is in a specific case. Um, so do you want to get the general idea across? Which brings us sort of to another question I wanted to ask you. Um, in in your opinion, because you you integrate so many things, like you do academic research, you're at the FU Berlin right now, mm -hmm. right? Um, you're doing sort of your own research at home because you can't get enough of, of like your academic research. <laughs> you do your outreach in your own project and with the soapbox science. So you sort of have a very broad overview uh, about science. And in your opinion, what do you think, what do you need to be a scientist? Sort of what are qualities that make a person a scientist? Curiosity, I would say. Like yeah. to ask questions. Many people think that And like, it's the first thing that they tell me when I say, oh, I'm a scientist. They say like, oh, you're so smart. And I'm like, no, it's a job. I'm just, I just like asking questions. But you actually feel quite the opposite because you realize that you don't know so much. Yeah. I mean, there are, don't, they, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people who I'm sure they are sure that they are pretty smart. And we, <laughs> but what I mean is that we are all smart in different ways for different kind of things and not because you are a scientist is you're like more brilliant than another person who is not a scientist so i think asking questions and and maybe doubting something so not necessarily saying right away oh okay i believe this mm -hmm. um but we obviously do fall into those things because we're humans Yeah. And so you also say like, no, I want to follow the research of this person and the f definition of this person and so on. So you 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 do fall into beliefs yeah. as well. But yeah. And if you doubt every every little fact, then you won't get anywhere because then you redo all of the science that has been done before. But it's very important to be doubtful at the critical points, right? To yeah. rather want to see a piece of additional I think it's, it's again ex questioning yeah. is the right word like you can be question like always questioning things yeah um, exactly which doesn't mean you don't believe in them but it's always just like you know yeah, questioning. Let's, let's do some yeah, experiments yeah that's great yeah. That's, that's actually a great word <laughs> <laughs> 
I actually, I think your your definition of like this idea to me now, the the first job of a science is not to give answers but to ask questions. That that seems like the most accurate definition of a scientist I've heard before. So yeah, yeah, that's very well <laughs> very put. Very cool. Yeah, uh, my my next question I have written here, and I think we touched a little bit about that already, is sort of what what do you need to do science? Because you apparently you did it in your in your flat, like in your kitchen, and you also moved places, if I remember correctly. Yeah. In the meantime, so wow. during a move, you managed to do science outside <laughs> of the lab. So, oh god, uh, it was not easy at all. It was super <laughs> stressful. We moved the experiment as well. <laughs> we 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 couldn't have the movers move the experiment because yeah, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I am so I am also very lucky that uh, my lab so my working group where we are uh we do a lot of uh more synthesis and more theoretical things so my boss is very big into um also extending knowledge so he tries to to bring together a lot of ideas that are around into trying to have like some not frameworks but uh, analyzing what what are the things that they have in common and he has a actually pretty cool um, project called high knowledge you can also uh, mm -hmm. they have a website and there you can find all the hypotheses in invasion science and how they are related and mm. which studies have confirmed or not the hypotheses because also invasion science has a lot of hypotheses out there <laughs> and many of them are also quite outdated so that they have not been supported at all but they are still out there <laughs> that, uh -huh. so we call like uh, zombie ideas mm -hmm. uh-huh <laughs> They're, they're, they keep on coming back in the, the public image or like with among scientists as well? I think both. Okay. Yeah. And so we, we do what I mean, <laughs> what I wanted to say is that we do a lot uh, also of this kind of work. I was not doing it so much before, but I, I, become, I became more and more interested. And yeah, that's why also working in this group was perfect. It's just very nice to try to see... Also, what are the relationships in, in a hypothesis? Uh, because in the end, the hypothesis came from somewhere. Like someone made an observation and said like, oh, I think this is the mechanism explaining the success of this invasive species. But it's not clear cut from another hypothesis. And yeah, they're actually quite related. I, I'm actually interested in this because there's I've seen an article recently which is discussing how that because we are flawed human beings the hypotheses of a the hypothesis of a scientist should be looked at not only in the context of the scientific literature at the time but also in the context of that scientist themselves <laughs> so there's often a lot of things we're bringing from our own life that kind of influence how we see the world and the example that was given in this really i think it was by the conservation this really amazing article was that for a long time in the bird song um, field people mostly thought that male birds sung and female birds did not like to sing. And it was only when female like bird biologists came onto the scene more <laughs> predominantly, they're like, hey guys, the females are also singing. You've just been ignoring it. And this to me is like such a clear example of how somebody had an idea. And then because it was the same sort of people with the same sort of ideas, 
that hypothesis that was driven, yeah, by their context, not just the context of of the environment. So, oh God, yeah, that sounds like a perfect example of why you need diversity in academia. Yeah. Such an important thing. I yeah, need to I think. have that uh, that study. Yeah, I will send you. There was, I think, it was on the conversation. I'll send you that. Yes, um, the the article, the journalist part article, and it has the links inside. But to me, I was just like, this is. This is perfect. Like yeah, for our <laughs> listeners, they can just listen back to last episode when you presented that yeah. for the first time. Oh, cool! I will yeah. do so. So there is also the link, but we can we send you the link so it doesn't get lost. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, let's not forget that science was quite racist as well in the past. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. I mean, some say it still is in some yeah, areas. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And I mean, it's the thing, like, this is not that we can predict what we've been missing. Like, when we add diversity, when it be as we become more diverse, we will see wondrous things that we never even realized we were missing because we had these narrow viewpoints. And that's that's the really important point to me. Like, we, we can't predict what the unknown unknowns are at this yeah, stage definitely. when we keep things narrow here. Yeah. We have a segment here. It's called Our Favorite Plant or My Favorite Plant. Do you have off the top of your head a plant that is your favorite, a plant that you worked with or that you've seen somewhere? Wait, we we can get your arm to play the jingle while while you're thinking to give like a twenty second. My favorite plant. So, what's that accent from? <laughs> That's me sounding incredibly stupid and Yoram then recording it and keeping it for eternity. Just really rub it in that I sound stupid. Yeah, I think it was the very first time we had this segment. Um, you said it like this and then I just took that and put that in a jingle. So I think I said it like 30 times and you no, took the no. stupid sounding one. I, I was deliberately being... Anyway. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Context is important, guys. And Yoram has taken me out of context and I object. <laughs> so. Sorry. <laughs> Your favorite plant. I will have to say... Acacia saligna. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this. <laughs> First of all, because thanks to that species, I got to go to South Africa. Mm -hmm. So that is, yeah, best place to work ever <laughs> from so many points of view. Um, <laughs> but the species per se is also very interesting uh, to study because you because it's a legume, and as I said, they they we know that they have this interaction with bacteria for sure. And you can also get the nodules and isolate the bacteria from there. So it's a bit more um, easy to say, okay, this bacteria is most likely interacting with the acacia because it is in the nodule. But also, well, like you can analyze so many things from, from this species. So how it, uh, competition may have a role in its in its success, how they affect soil conditions, because they obviously, since they fix nitrogen, they also change the con the soil conditions because uh, soils in the fimbos and the fimbos vegetation, so the 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 vegetation of the Cape uh, is very nutrient poor, so they change these conditions themselves. So they are what we call ecological engineers. Yeah, so anyways, that, that one is my favorite, I would say. I, I cool. Since my PhD, I thought I would want to work with acacia species because they also seem to invade quite cool places. And like like they are in, in Italy, like in Sardinia, 
which is like, who doesn't want to go to Sardinia? <laughs> and they are in South Africa and they're in Australia, although they are native there from some parts. They also invade parts of Australia. So <laughs> so it's like, you get like a, to, to work in a cool place for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're like just confirming conspiracy theory that I've already had, which is that a lot of ecologists choose their their study organisms or their study region based on how nice it would be to, for example, holiday there. Like I've seen studies of these pristine atolls where they're like, oh, yeah, we're studying the, the coral reef communities here. I'm like, that is beautiful. <laughs> I would love to study anything there. I mean, it could be cockroaches or rats. I would go there. And yeah, <laughs> I think it might Perfect. be both. So you have the the researchers who want to do research there, but also you have the funders who think like, oh, it's cool to investigate, I don't know, hotspots mm. of diversity in contrast to, I don't know, Berlin, not to be bad <laughs> with the city. But <laughs> I'm, I'm doing research here as well now, like, <laughs> about yeah, animals I'm talking about here. just vegetation. <laughs> Yeah, if we don't insult Berlin at least once an episode, it's not a real Plants and Pipettes episode. It's, it's, it's normal. Um, I have to say, it's not the first time that acacia has come up as a favorite plant on the, the podcast. So I've also talked about another species of the golden wattle, which is one of the, the emblem, is a floral emblem of my state of Australia, so Western Australia. Oh, so. cool. And what, what species is it? Like, just to see, just to, <laughs> just to give you the bad news if it's invasive or not. I hope it's not invasive the, the to Western Australia. Pignanta. Oh, God, it's invasive. <laughs> <laughs> but not to Australia, right? I mean, it's invasive to South Africa, hopefully. Oh, hopefully, not hopefully. Yeah. Sorry, South <laughs> Africa. Like, hopefully not to, not to my part of Australia. Uh, no, no, no. It might, no, it, it might be native to that area, but I know that many of the acacias, uh, uh, if they're from Western um, Australia, then they are maybe invasive in some other part. Yeah, I think um, it's what you said, like Western Australia and I guess also with South Africa, but it just has the the crappiest soil in the world. There's there's no nitrogen, there's no phosphate. It's it's really old, it's really weathered, basically. So I sometimes feel like the plants that can survive in our part of the world can survive anywhere. So probably they're just really excited yeah. whenever they get out of Australia and they're like, I'm free, let's party. And that's why, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, eucalypts are also a huge problem in many parts of the world yes. where people brought them for for rapidly growing timber and this is like tree species that the second they hit water they just grow like 30 meters tall in three days yeah. i mean i'm exaggerating but not by much guys <laughs> and now they're invasive surprise surprise <laughs> like yeah they're huge yeah yeah i mean uh they they many times either they were moved around because they remind uh, reminded for example europeans of their land but also they were moved around because of their characteristics, either good wood or that it grew really fast. Um, so they actually are pre-selected because of those characteristics to be moved around. And then those characteristics are the ones or those traits are the ones who help them. Sometimes you look back and you're like, how did you not know this was going to happen? Like you literally <laughs> chose the thing that was going to go crazy. And now you're like, oh, it's gone crazy. We have a little bit of a problem here. It's... um. And also, spoiler alert, fire cannot destroy them because many Australian species are encouraged by fire. They have yeah. like resistant capacity or they sprout or seed and yeah, yeah disastrous, exactly. honestly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little bit smug about this. I think like growing up in Australia, we always heard about European species coming in, um, especially the animals mm -hmm. like rabbits and foxes and cats and really devastating our environment. And I think that's part of the lesson is that 
invasive is defined by not the species itself but like if it's in the wrong place um so i was always like oh poor australian species and then it was only when i left australia 10 years ago that people were like oh yeah <laughs> like your eucalyptus are like are really killing our our landscapes they're really a problem and i was like oh okay this is <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and yeah. here uh, you find in gardens this uh cortaderia species um i don't know it's it's one that has this um I don't know how to say that in English. <laughs> it says pampas grass. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. So Cortaderia seona seonada? Seona, yeah. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> with, the, with the Spanish accent. <laughs> uh, that one is uh, very common in, the, in rivers close to where I used to live. Mm. But in the Mediterranean areas, it's invasive. And it's actually mm. quite a problem. But I'm like, oh, but I think it feels so like nice. Home, right? Whenever I <laughs> yeah. see eucalyptus, I'm just like, oh, I'm home again. Like that second of, yeah. Yeah, um, but they, they were, many of them were moved around because of that. Like, we, well, many of the animals that are invasive in Argentina were introduced because either they reminded people of home Or they thought the animals from Europe were nicer or superior to the ones in the new range. So, yeah, it was cooler to, to hunt deer than to hunt the native ones. Yeah. For those of you who don't know this, this um, cortige, corta, sorry, Cortadaria, third time's a charm, um, it's pampas grass, but it's the one that you'll see often... Um, inside people's houses in a kind of ornamental way and it's it's yeah. really beautiful it looks like a, a kind of a squirrel tail on a long stick <laughs> that's yeah, the best exactly. way I can explain it um you've probably seen it honestly guys um but we can also put a link to to the image there yeah uh, invasive apparently can can be a very naughty grass as it turns out yeah <laughs> and it's Like when you say grass, one imagines like a small thing, but it's huge. So. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And there's also a pink version, which is very pleasing. Um, I, I like this grass. It's it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, you see. Catches the sunlight, kind of glows. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Yarn. please lead us back in the direction of a, of a structured no, interview. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm looking at the picture. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. Like I, I wouldn't mind having that growing if I wouldn't know that it's invasive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, in Germany, I don't think it can become invasive, but you never know. Yeah, I mean, rising temperatures and everything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You never know. Do you have, are you in contact with other researchers in Germany about invasive species? I know that in, I think in Sachsen-Anhalt or Thüringen, there's like a big center that deals with that, um, where I just listened, I try to remember now in what podcast and where I've, I've uh, listened to that, but they are also doing, I think, a citizen science experiment where they want to sort of map invasive species. I think their plan is to um, yeah, get people to go out there and pinpoint on a map with their GPS coordinates where they find an invasive species so that then researchers can come and have a look if that's really invasive and if they have to do something about it. No, I, I did not know about that project, so would love to. There, there are a lot of um, citizen science projects uh, um, like around. I, I really like them, but I also feel like overwhelmed by mm -hmm. <laughs> the amount of work you have to put up for that. In the end, if you, ha if you have like a whole group that is involved in something like that, then for sure it's yeah. something you can do. But like for one person, yeah. even just... Keeping the tweety, the Twitter and Facebook account alive is so much work. Yeah. Yo. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
Um, just... But I, that, that's a good point to, to say that if you are not into plants and you like birds or frogs or um, uh, penguins, whatever, there's probably a citizen science group out there for you. There's just a lot of them out there. And it's actually one yes. of the, the silver linings of this really terrible time is that people have got more invested in citizen science. And there are many apps that you can download um, and you can become a part of of helping out with your favorite discoveries if you want to. So. Yeah, some time ago I saw, I think the British Ecological Society sent an email on uh, different citizen science projects or other things that you could be involved, like either by helping like input data or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So there were, there were like a list of projects. I can look that up. Um, it seems really cool, but I just don't have more time. <laughs> it's always the issue, right? Yeah. Yeah, but even uh, using the apps in the the different apps that there are really good ones in Germany and I'm sure also for the UK where you can identify the the plants around uh, mm -hmm. I, I found something just the other day I think it's called tree talk or maybe tree walk I will again I'll put the link but it's basically you can you can plan a walk from your house or your flat and it will sort of show you the different types of trees that you're interacting as you go through so you oh, can cool. yeah I mean super super lovely and there's also been somebody in my neighborhood um, in London who's been writing in chalk on the the pavement oh. about yeah Rachel yes, I, I think saw the Again, they, they have a Twitter account. It's exactly. called More Than Weeds. Oh, this might be a different one even. But oh. um, <laughs> we'll put the links to both of those um, in the show notes. But there's, I'll try there's to just... keep track. <laughs> Sorry, Yarim. <laughs> type faster, type faster. Um, then Weeds, I'm putting down there. Or maybe they were retweeting that other account, but I saw it in, in their account. Mm -hmm. Rachel Summers at Curious Wilds is the one in my area. Um, uh -huh. Guys, don't oh. try and find where I live and stalk me. It's creepy. Um, and then the other one, I think, I'm not sure, tree something. I can find that again and I'll put the link in there. Yeah. And I found uh, my old source that I had in mind. It's called, the app is called Corina. Um, not to be confused with Corona. Corina is um, is like a website and app where they help you to identify invasive species and map them. And it's from Halle and uh, Katrin Schneider is the lead researcher there who's involved uh, with developing that system. Oh, cool. And at the uh, Independent Institute for and questions of uh, or environmental questions, I think, is the oh, cool. English translation. The one that I use, uh, Flora Incognita. Oh, I oh, use PlantNet, which also works very well. Um, so there's a couple of apps nowadays. Yeah. Um, I like I have a, a cemetery nearby that's like a, a city cemetery. So it's sort of very, it's a large park that also has uh, graves in it. Um, and I was always walking my with my with my infant son when he was born. I was walking there because it's quiet, um, and they have so many ornamental plants growing mm -hmm. growing there that I went with my app and like identified as many as I could because I was interested in what they actually were. Um, and what they're growing there. Um, I don't remember if any of them were invasive, but it was just very much, it was very fun to go out with like a smartphone and suddenly give names and identities to things that you yeah. pass all the time. I think <laughs> it's not, it's not like the rule, but almost always, if it's super beautiful and all over the place, it's invasive. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> So many times my, my sister always gets angry because I ruin the plants that she likes. 
because she's like, oh, I really love that plant. And I'm like, it's invasive. No. <laughs> and then she feels really sad. Or, or some people in Facebook posting this inspirational phrases with, I don't know, like a, a tree that was cut and then it's re-sprouting. And I'm like, that's bad management. That's an invasive species. It should be there. Keep it dead. It shouldn't, it shouldn't come back to life. It's, it's a bad tree. I had that the first time I went down to the south of Germany. They have the Black Forest there. And I was like, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. You know, this, we don't have this kind of forest in Australia. We have completely different trees. And then a German person turned to me and was like, They've all been planted. This is not what was originally here. These black trees have been planted for tourists. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> why? Like, but it was still beautiful. So that's, yeah, that's the beauty of trees, I guess. Yeah, in Germany, it's really hard to find original forests. I like, think in Europe most generally, of it is, right? It's like artificially planted. Like there was a time when we cut everything down and for firewood. And so <laughs> to regrow firewood, we planted trees, but that killed all of the sort of original um, forests that we have. Then if people want to get in touch with you, um, how can they do that? Well, usually Twitter is mm -hmm. the best place. I think. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, Flor Janelli, I think. So Y-A-N-N. -N. I mean, we put the Your link in the show notes. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My uh, favorite thing in English is hard. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, we, it's been made up, so it's just... <laughs> yeah, the thing sense. is like... I is E for us in Spanish. So I always doubt like, okay, is it like, what is, is it like, ah? <laughs> I'm trying to do Spanish lessons now. And yeah, you have the double L that becomes a Y, which is completely confusing to me. And then also at some stage in my, my past, I learned Italian. So every time I see like a CE, I make a CH sound, which is the Italian. And my yeah. Spanish teacher is like a proper, like, she's like, Spanish, like Spain Spanish. So she wants to have that like lispy oh, sound. No. And she's just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all my Spanish speaking friends are from South America. So they're like, don't make the lisp. The Spanish teacher is like, make the lisp. And I'm busy making a CH sound like Italian. And nobody's happy. It's very hard. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And like then you get to different uh, parts of uh, the world where they speak Spanish and they have different accents. Even in Argentina, they are different. The double L uh, that is pronounced like in Buenos Aires is pronounced sh, so. <laughs> ah, she's luck. at the stage where she's like, I don't care if you guys do South American, but please stop doing Italian. Like, please just, this is not, fair you're enough. making up a new, yeah, it's fair enough. It's like, you're making up a new language and it's not okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, there okay. you are. You can no, cut that if you. <laughs> no, no, I think, I, I think it's fun. Although I want to say, like you said, English is made up. Like what other language isn't made up? Like, I think English has a lot less rules as far as, especially the spelling. The spelling is chaotic because it's borrowed from so many different languages. Yeah, so I think true. there are rules, but like some of the rules are Greek rules and some of the rules are Latin rules and some of them are like dramatic. Like it's, it's got all these mixes. So the spelling could go either way depending on the, the origin of that word. And that's, that's what brings the chaos. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And then I think it's also adapted more to um, like because it was like a language that spread, it, it got altered more rapidly, I, I think. I'm not sure if this is true. Linguists come at me. Like, I don't know. I'm a scientist. <laughs> But I think that also has made it, um, yeah, not have these regulations where it's adapted to usage, not to actual rules, which just makes it stupid. That's <laughs> the result is chaos. 
If you want to come at us um, because we are butchering <laughs> linguistic science, you can find us. Uh, and that, with that, I mean us at Plants and Pipettes. Tegan and I you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. On Facebook, you usually talk to me and also on Instagram. It's at Plants and Pipettes. You can find us on our website. That's www.plantsandpipettes.com. We publish about two articles per week about molecular plant research and this podcast that you're listening to that you can rate wherever you can rate podcasts. Yeah. Should I say in the articles that have come up in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about atomic gardening and this amazing historical woman called Muriel Haworth, who was She was just incredible. I mean, she basically took it upon herself to create all of these societies which aimed at educating the public on the possible benefits of using, you know, atomic science for, for good of society. She's incredible. Go and read that article. Um, we've also been talking about how cucumbers become became curvy and what that has to do with the EU and Brexit. Um, and a few weeks back, Yoram's ranting about Greenpeace issues. So <laughs> please go and check those out on www.plantsandpipettes.com. Yes. So thank you again for uh, being with us tonight. I had so much fun. It was really, thank really you so cool. much. It was great. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, makes me wonder why we didn't do that earlier. Like have p exciting people on here. Um, but maybe, Thanks, maybe more. In like you mean ecologist, right? Yeah. yeah. Ecologist, <laughs> ecologist, but also like you, I, I really enjoy your perspective. He just means like somebody not Tegan. That's why he's trying to say. It's like, you know, yes. it's really nice to speak to somebody else who's, who's not Somebody Tegan. who has something interesting to say. Yeah. Of always the same talking points. No, I really enjoyed your, your very unique and um, very sort of inclusive perspective, having so many different paths. So, so often people focus on one or the other of these things. But I like that you research in academia and outside of academia and do outreach. And um, yeah, so that was a, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, yeah, yeah I, before I forget, I have to say that our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. That's because of a Creative Commons license that I have to say that every single week. And with that, goodbye. Thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you. you.